to us today from the second gospel, Mark chapter 10. We hear it first in Spanish and then in English. Let's listen for the word of the Lord. Y se acercaron los fariseos y le preguntaron para atentarle si era lícito al marido repudiar a su mujer. Él respondió, les dijo, ¿qué os mandó Moisés? Ellos dijeron, Moisés permitió dar carta de divorcio y repudiarla. Y respondiendo Jesús les dijo, por la dureza de vuestro corazón os escribió este mandamiento. Pero al principio de la creación, varón y hembra los hizo Dios. Por esto dejará el hombre a su padre y a su madre, y se unirá a su mujer, y los dos serán una sola carne. Así que no son ya más dos, sino uno. Por tanto, lo que Dios juntó no lo separa el hombre. Some Pharisees came and to test Jesus, they asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Jesus answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of dismissal and to divorce her. But Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses wrote this commandment for you. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. En casa volvieron los discípulos a preguntarle de lo mismo. Y les dijo, cualquiera que repudia a su mujer y se casa con otra, comete adulterio contra ella. Y si la mujer repudia a su marido y se casa con otro, comete adulterio. Y le presentaban los niños para que los tocara, y los discípulos reprendían a los que los presentaban. Viéndolo Jesús, se indignó y les dijo, Dejad a los niños venir a mí, y no se lo impidáis, porque de los tales es el reino de, los de, de Dios. De cierto os digo, que el que no reciba el reino de Dios como un niño, no entrará en él. Y tomándolos en los brazos, poniendo las manos sobre ellos, los bendecía. Then in the house, the disciples asked Jesus again about this matter. He said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her, and if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. People were bringing little children to Jesus in order that he might touch them. And the disciples spoke sternly to them. But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant and said to them, Let the little children come to me. Do not stop them. For it is to such as these that the kingdom of God belongs. Truly I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will never enter it. And Jesus took the children up in his arms, laid his hands on them, and blessed them. May the Spirit of God speak to this people of God. Together we say, thanks be to God. Be seated. Well, I'm not sure which genius picked this text for World Communion Sunday. A reading on divorce seems so profoundly off the point for World Communion Sunday, a day when the church worldwide tries to say, we are one. I realize that this text will, might be largely irrelevant for those who aren't married or aren't divorced, 
And for those in the room who are divorced, including your pastor in 1985, this is a little bit awkward. (laughs) Mark tells us that the Pharisees came to Jesus asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife in order to test Jesus? What is the test? Well, I noticed a couple things first as I hear their question. First, I notice how the language, how even the way the question is formed reveals the power differential in the relationship. Did you notice it's not man and woman, which would speak to gender, or it's not husband and wife, which would speak to role, but rather it's man, the male power gender, and his wife, the role. So immediately you see by the way the question's asked that the men have the upper hand. And we know that in first century, this was certainly the truth. There was exploitation, there was domination. The second thing I notice is the question itself. They don't ask these Pharisees, is it lawful? They, they don't ask, is it right for a man to divorce his right wife? They ask, is it lawful. Their focus is not on relationship. It's on the law, the rules. The fact that women are being dominated in first century uh, Israel does not seem to bother the Pharisees. There's no record that I'm aware of of Pharisees necessarily advocating for God's justice. They're not the prophets. It seems that their role in the Jewish society is to Kind of keep the peace, contain the religion, keep them out of the attention and the crosshairs of the empire, out of, out, of the, out of the attention of Rome. And so one of the things that they need to do is shut up this upstart preacher named Jesus and thus the test. Again, they don't care about exploitation. They're not really defenders of the people. And in case you haven't noticed, they're all men. So... What's the test? I think that the Pharisees knew, they knew, that Jesus would not like their ace in the hole, this certificate of dismissal, that they can, they can trace all the way back to one of the patriarchs of the faith, none other than Moses himself. They know Jesus won't like that. Even though Moses' intent wasn't to allow men to be dominant of women, but rather just the opposite, to call men to a kind of responsibility in the process of divorce, to set some limits. But over the centuries, this requirement that Moses has given them has been turned into a kind of loophole, a way to get out of responsibilities. And the Pharisees know that Jesus is going to want to stand with the victims in divorce in the male-dominated culture. That is, to stand with the women. Women who have no social safety net in that day. And when he does, they predict, they'll be able to pit him and his concern for the victim, the women in divorce, over against Moses. There's the test. So, Jesus... Lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Jesus lets them make the case. What does Moses say? 
and they say, well, he's given us this certificate of divorce. Boom, there it is. Take that, Jesus. Here's the rule. Here's the loophole. Here's our justification. Now what are you going to say? Jesus doesn't even address the question of Moses except to say, Moses gave you this because of the hardness of your hearts, because you're a rule-based religion rather than a relationship-based religion. From the beginning, this isn't what God intended. This wasn't God's design for the world. Jesus goes way past Moses, all the way back in their shared history to Adam and Eve and God. From the beginning, here's the dream of God. Here's the original design. It's about oneness. Not about power games. Not about domination or exploitation. But oneness. It's about harmony. Not splitting up or quitting on relationships. It's about working together. Not fighting. Not hurting our children. Not complicating our lives. It's about blessing each other, not tearing each other down, not competing, not trying to one-up each other. In other words, we human beings are designed in marriage, in church, in the world, in all our relations to live in communion. Communion. Communion isn't just a meal we eat At church, communion is the posture of the kingdom of God. You think about nature, how it works in harmony. Yes, there are difficult pieces. There are things that happen that cause pain and disorder. But ultimately, it works in harmony. And that's the way humanity was created to live. And I realize... That this lectionary reading for this morning about the Pharisees raising the question of divorce is exactly what we need to talk about. Because whereas rule-based religion says we can divide, relationship-based religion says we are one. What God has joined together, let no one put asunder. Isaiah the prophet saw it. He knew this was still the dream of God, that the wolf dwell with the lamb, that the leopard be able to lie down with the young goat, that the calf and the lion be able to live together. God's original design, the way God drew this world up and sent this world into its trajectory, is that there be a sacred kind of ecosystem where every single person No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what talents you have, no matter what color your skin or the language you speak, that every person blends and works together in synchronization. I think of those Olympic skating teams and how they dance and skate together. It's it's like that, only not that dorky. It's, It's more harmonious and real and important. So frankly, at a church level, World Communion Sunday is kind of lame, I'll admit it. We claim to be one with all the church, but we didn't, even, we didn't even invite the Presbyterians from up the street to come down on this one Sunday to join us, much less a church from across town or a church with whom we might have disagreements. Now, in our defense, I would say 
They didn't invite us either. But more seriously, I think we realize that denominational differences really aren't that big a deal anymore, are they? They're not the central issue. For years, the church made them the central issue, perhaps subconsciously as a way to avoid the real issues that face a world that's being called back into the dream of God, to call back into that picture that we have of Eden, of all things working in harmony. What is a big deal is that harmony and how we're inviting our children to live into this kind of harmony. Not just our children here at Highland, but all of the children of the world. And it almost feels uh, planned or, or staged that at this very moment when Jesus has steered the question about divorce to God's, God's larger intention from the very beginning, that at just that moment, a group of parents come with their children to have Jesus bless them. It, and I picture this scene like we saw last week when Pope Francis was in town and people brought their children to be blessed by him. Here at Highland, uh, during the weekday, we have the opportunity to watch the little children who come with their parents. The parents take classes during the week, English classes, uh, literacy classes, and the children are uh, kept together in the child care center. They're in our hallways, they're out on our playground, and you need to come by and see these children. Babies to about three years old, I'd say, a full array of colors and nationalities and sizes and shapes of their eyes and the texture of their hair. It's, it's amazing. And they're all so equally beautiful and precious. And when you look at any one of them, you realize they bear the image of God in their little faces. Yes, I do see their runny noses. I see their scabby knees, I see their sticky fingers, and we see the evidence of their muddy shoes up and down our hallways, but we don't focus on their faults. I focus on their lives, and I think to myself, I would do anything in the world for one of these kids. And you would too. Even if you're here this morning, and you're the biggest jerk on your block, You would too. As I talk about these kids, there's something in you that is called to do anything for these kids. That's how it's supposed to be. That's how we're wired to live. Some people might call this impulse just instinct. Or other people might say, well, that's just what it means to be human. But I call it the God part of us rising up. The God part within us who recognizes something primal and sees that this impulse to do anything for a child is our primal understanding as human beings that really we are one. We know. We know. It's in our DNA that what God has joined together, let no one put asunder. My first church out of seminary was in Austin, Texas, a name much like the name of this church. It was Highland Park Baptist Church. I worked, um, my, my, the senior pastor was a man named Ray Burchette, tall, handsome, always wore 
the best clothes in town, went to a really nice clothing store, dressed impeccably. Bless his heart, he had uh, as his church staff me and this elderly pastor named Jim Sapp. Some of you may know his son, Bill, who has been a counselor here in Kentucky for many, many years. I worked with his father, Jim. Jim was nearing retirement. He had been through the Southern Baptist Wars. He'd been a minister of education his whole ministry, worked for a while at the Home Mission Board, but mainly did church education during a time when Southern Baptists were all focused on counting people, counting people. How many people did you have in Sunday school this morning? They even had a campaign. It was the year I was born. They called it a million more in 54. It was all about counting people. Well, Sapp was, uh, he was a character. He saw the world a little differently. He was a guy who chewed a cigar. He had been a cigar smoker. He went to chewing them, so he'd chew on his cigar, but about halfway through the day, he would turn the cigar around and chew the other end, which left this thing kind of hanging, and, and, and he would every once in a while take it out and spit. And poor Ray Burchette, who was so dignified and refined, it was just so fun for me to watch this go on. But Sapp had on his office desk a little plaque a little brown plastic plaque with white letters across it. Most people would have had their name and maybe their title there. But Jim's had two words. People count. People count. I thought, tell me about this sign, I asked one day. He said, well, I grew up in an era where the focus was on counting people. But I've come to realize that I need to take my cue from Jesus, that the goal is not to count people, but is to see that people count. All the children of the world count. You count. No matter who you are and what you've done, you're a child of God, and you count. Your life is important to God And thus your life is important to the people of God. The Pharisees' religion, like far too much of Western Christianity, is a rule-based religion. It's about conformity. It's about following external rules. Compare that to Jesus' religion, which is internal, instinctive. It's humanity fully alive and in tune with God's dream. That's Jesus' religion. What God has joined together, let no one put asunder. And so Jesus opens his arms and welcomes these children in. And they're in his arms and on his lap. And it becomes almost the perfect frame for him to say these words. The kingdom of God, folks, belongs to the children. The kingdom of God belongs to the children. He said this in a day when children had no power whatsoever. And yet Jesus says, the children aren't just allowed in the kingdom. They aren't just tolerated in the kingdom. They own the kingdom. They're going to set the the menu for the banquet. They're going to be the ones who decide what the password is. And they'll decide whether they're going to let you in or not. But here's the good news. They will let you in because children are forgiving and trusting 
And they operate out of this natural, God-given knowledge that we are one. That what God joins together, no one should put asunder. So if, according to Jesus, the kingdom is owned by the children, we need to memorize their passcode. Here it is. What God joins together, let no one put asunder. Let's pray together. May sacred love abound. May we be given in this day the eyes to see all of your children, the heart to embrace all of your children, the hands and the feet willing to step into your work of love and do it. And may we begin, O oh God, with the deep realization that we, we, each one of us, are so deeply and intimately loved by you. May this truth awaken us this day and send us out of this place to be more fully your people. In your holy name we pray, amen.